everybody wins. Tell your neighbor, tell your friend, we're gonna make America great again. Come on, make America great again. All right, welcome back. This is an unusual uh, time of year, second podcast of the year, and we already have our first book. And we have our, a great guest, Greg Kelly from Newsmax, who just wrote a book, Justice for All. I'm here with Cash. Cash. Hey, everybody. Doing? I couldn't, Greg, it's great to be with you. I couldn't let you be the only guy from Garden City on the Return of the Devin Nunes podcast. So I had to jump in. And Greg, I can't believe it's, uh, this is like, you know, I get to interview you, which is kind of fun <laughs> too. It's normally you interviewing me. So we're, we're, so we're excited to be, to be here. So welcome. Suburban yeah. New York City uh, town on Long Island, Garden City. It's actually a very <laughs> unique gem of a town. Uh, but I'm pretty sure neither Cash and I ever want to live there again. But it's, uh, yeah, we, we, we've been there, done that. I, I know that you're in uh, New York City, and I'll tell you, it's just the, the whole damn thing's gone downhill in the last you know, a few years, especially after COVID. I was there last year, just couldn't believe it, how just dirty and dangerous it is. It is heartbreaking and it's so unnecessary. Uh, this city is being destroyed by the liberal left-wing corrupt ideology of Black Lives Matter and everything associated with it. Uh, corporate America, they signed up for this uh, thing they don't understand and they did it so thoughtlessly Black Lives Matter and everything that goes with it, the 1619 Project, they are about abolishing the police, forget defunding. They want to abolish police, abolish prisons, and turn this country into a socialist, communist state. And in some ways, they're winning. In some ways, they're actually yeah. pulling this off. They're, they're uh, winning by destroying the, the cities in this country. Which is heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but they don't believe in America the way we do. Uh, I think it's reversible. However, I don't know exactly what's going to happen over the next 10, 20, 30 years. I don't know if this gets resolved by 2024. It's far deeper, far more systemic than just, okay, we're going to fix everything in the next election cycle. Yeah. So Greg, look, let's just start from the beginning. So you wrote this book, Justice for All, and we'll, and we'll get into that. But one of the things I like to do on the podcast because we don't, you know, oftentimes, like I was joking, you know, I get to interview you because uh, normally you're the one interviewing us. Uh, but, you know, you you are a, obviously you were in the Marine Corps. I think most people know that. You have the number one show on Newsmax, very successful uh, in your own right. You've written this book, but you talked about growing up in, uh, in, in Garden City. But what did you do? Like after that, you went to, did you go to college in the Marines or did you, Go straight into the Marines. Just kind of walk us through your childhood into into growing up and how you ultimately ended up at Newsmax. Sure, uh, great childhood in suburban New York City. Um, uh, mother, father. I have an older brother. Very close family. My father was a police officer when I was born, and for most of my childhood, he was a you know a sergeant and a lieutenant and a captain. But he was very much you know kind of a rank and file law enforcement professional. Uh, it was not until I was about in my early 20s that my father kind of became somewhat famous as police commissioner of, of New York City. So it wasn't like I was born to this prominent New York family. It was a great family, but my father was a police officer. Uh, 
And um, I followed my father's footsteps, not into law enforcement, but into the Marine Corps. He was a Marine. Um, I saw what it gave him. I heard the stories. I kind of wanted that for myself. So I followed the same path he did in terms of the Marines. There's an officer candidate program that you can enroll while you're in college. And I did while I was at Fordham University, officer candidate school, kind of like officer and a gentleman. If you've ever seen that movie, a little bit of full metal jacket thrown in <laughs> um, after college, I was commissioned a second lieutenant. And then I was full time Marines for nine years. I became a pilot and um, that was an amazing experience. I had a five year commitment after flight school. Flight school took four years. You had to fly three different airplanes. I think wow. I moved four different times. Landed on aircraft carriers, you know, very intense training and very intense flying all over the world as a Harrier pilot. Got to fly over Iraq, uh, landing on aircraft carriers at night. It was an amazing experience. But I knew, like my father, I wanted to do my time and get out. Um, I came to a point where it was about I had a year left on my contract. What am I going to do next? And I actually um, thought about the FBI. I interviewed with Lee. <laughs> you chose red flag. You, you made the right choice. <laughs> yeah, it was it was an interesting moment. Um, I came home uh, after uh, basically thinking about what I, I told my dad. I want to be a broadcast journalist. I want to be a TV news reporter. And he thought that was uh, not practical and kind of crazy. And, uh, and what, what year is this, Greg? What year is this? This is 1999 into 2000. All right. And he said, look, I know people in media. I think you should talk to them first before you make this decision. And I was also thinking about business school and law school and the FBI. So for about three months, I went on as many coffees and interviews and conversations as I could have from everybody from, you know, just a, uh, a Dan Rather to Louis Free at the FBI. And it was interesting. I was sitting with Louis Free and I remember thinking – he was a, he was great. He was very nice. And, uh, and I think his name was Picard, his deputy. Yeah. And I just realized that it was very much like the Marine Corps, except civilian attire, that this was a bureaucracy. This was, you know, you, you're promoted on a schedule and it, I was looking for adventure. I was looking for, you know, I just did not want to work for the government coming from the military. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a very nice meeting, but I realized, and he said, I got to meet with MSNBC pretty soon. And that was the only time I really perked up. Oh, really? Who are you talking to? You know what I mean? So I knew that I think journalism, that's why I, I sought adventure. Adventure propelled me into the Marine Corps and it kind of propelled me into the world of media and um, a bunch of jobs in local news and working my way up the ladder. Roger Rails hired me because yeah. of my Marine Corps experience. He thought I'd be good in Iraq. And it turned out he was right. Uh, he was having trouble getting correspondents to agree to go over there. Mm -hmm. And I did the results. I was the first broadcast journalist into Baghdad with troops and achieved some, uh, you know, some attention and had a good run at Fox News. Um, and ultimately, uh, Newsmax. I was not a conservative while I was at Fox. I wasn't. I was actually somewhat left. For really? me. The wow. I didn't know that's that. breaking news here on, the, on, the, on our podcast. Kill the show. End it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it'll make sense to you guys because I mentioned Iraq. I had flown over Iraq as a pilot. I was there as an embedded correspondent um, before the war started, during the war and after the war. 
And I knew that that war was unnecessary. I knew something about Saddam Hussein. I knew something about the re region. I knew that Iraq was contained. And I did not believe George W. Bush, especially when he says he was shooting at our pilots and we had to go in there. I mean, I was one of those pilots. We had complete domination of the skies over Iraq. There was no threat posed. The idea that we were invading to retaliate for these silly you know, pot shots he was taking. He never shot down one plane in 12, 13 years. And if you were against the war like I was, you did not have a home in the Republican Party. That was not the place for you. And the Democrats were all over the place, quite frankly, on the war. And they were not serious about opposing it. And that's one of the reasons I was so drawn to President Trump. Um, it's true that he opposed the war. People say, well, he told Howard Stern that he actually supported the war. That's not true. No, it's a fact. And this is another thing that kind of awakened me as a journalist. It's not a fact that he said he supported the war. It's a fact that on October 14th of 2002, he said to Howard Stern, when asked, should we invade Iraq? Yeah, I guess so. That's what he, that's a fact. Not that he supported the war, that he said those. And Donald Trump actually stuttered in that moment. <laughs> never heard Donald, Donald Trump stutter in his life, except for yeah. that moment. And that that doesn't mean he supported the war. And the way he took it on, the way he took on the Bush uh, dynasty, it was music to my ears. And it's one of the many reasons why I thought this guy can win. And oh, by the way, I predicted that Donald Trump would win the day he declared for president, June 16th, 2015. And I did so publicly. Wow. Kind of proud of that. Was, you're the was, you're the guy. <laughs> Maggie Haberman, the New York Times, they were all laughing and goofing. And uh, part of it was I was in the room. It was a coincidence. It was a fluke. My co-anchor at the time was friendly with um, Michael Cohen. And Rosanna Scotta says, do you want to go to Trump Tower? There's something going on. I'm like, yeah, why not? It's on the way home. And we were there standing wow. about 10 feet back from Trump. Uh, in the room. It's all cameras, by the way, very few reporters, very few journalists, just a lot of just cameramen and technicians. And because I was there, only because I was there and the energy of the moment and the message, was I able to detect just how seismic this was. I really kind of, in a weird way, felt the earth move. It was so strange. Yet, most reporters, you know, they're blogging from Brooklyn. You know, they're never going to be able to pick up on that stuff. And they're so busy being snarky with each other online. And there's no time. No, they don't have the resources to actually go and see something with their own eyes, which is a major problem for so-called journalists uh, these days. And also in the intelligence community, quite frankly. And Devin, for you and Cash, I was just back to Iraq for a moment. We had so many people at the Central Intelligence Agency sending reports about reports about reports, but nobody had firsthand information. Right. I mean, there's one guy in the world, probably, you know, who, if it's true, who talked to Curveball. And the, by the time that gets up to uh, the analysts and George Tennant, and it's a slam dunk, they don't know what they're talking about. They have no textual kind of gritty, you know, they have no granular idea of what they're talking about because they've been able to create a, a world that they want to live in through zeros and ones and bits and bytes on computers. Yeah. No, no, no right. question about that. I mean, it's, 
you know, my experience with this, you know, we make jokes about the FBI and it's sad that we, you know, have to laugh out loud about, about it. But, uh, you know, in my time, you know, watching the military and, and the FBI justice, all the things that, that I, all the different agencies that we oversaw, um, you know, we're spending so much money that at the end of the day, they typically, we, we do a lot of good work uh, and can, you know, deliver, you know, some, uh, some fairly impressive blows like, you know, come, come to mind. We did track down bin Laden. That was a very successful raid, kind of the height of, of all of that experience we gained through uh, whether you supported the war in Iraq or Afghanistan or not. Um, you know, we did, it was a lot of good on the job training. And when it came time to exercise that mission, we were able to exercise it and we can, we can strike terrorists almost at any time, anywhere in the world if they, if they pop up. But on the other hand, it's been the, just this weaponization of the intelligence agencies and the military and the politicization. It was probably what it was in, in the early 2000s, Greg, was more politicization on both sides of that argument, I must say. You know, whether you're pro or anti, it became a political football, which was not, which was not good. Um, and now that's turned into really just the weaponization and the, the whole world has kind of changed underneath us. And uh, you've been on the forefront of this, you know, on your show for many, many years. And I'm sure it kind of pains you to watch kind of just the decay uh, in, the, in the military and, and DOJ and FBI. It does. You know, we used to revere these institutions and it was a given that they were honorable and effective and uh I am, you know, sometimes really surprised that I'm in this position, but uh, we are because these institutions have failed us. Um, I am, and two years ago, I wouldn't have said this, but I am afraid of the deep state, you know, especially when you, you take these public stances, as, as some of us do, and you, the hair starts to stand up on the back of your head. You know, am I, are they going to pull a Dinesh D'Souza on me? Are they going to go through everything I've ever done and try to find? And there is a real risk of that now. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, this is, um, and this is not America. We're in the right, by the way. You know, I, Devin, we talked about this briefly last night. The Justice Department has 110,000 employees who are not political appointees. That's a lot of bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's, that's not what the framers had in mind. And these things take a on a life of their own, these these organizations. And it's all about them, not about us. Ronald Reagan, if anybody gets a chance, his farewell address 34 years ago yesterday, I believe, about mm -hmm. how you know this is about supposed to be about the people. The people choose the government. The government doesn't choose the people. He spoke so powerfully and eloquently. And, and now we have a madman like Biden yelling at people to take the vaccine or else. Right. Um, yeah. Or else he's going to sniff you. <laughs> but uh, but Greg, coming from New York and you know growing up on in Long Island, it was a wonderful experience. Um, but you're right, um, I'm never going back to to good old GC. But you know, back in the day when we were growing up, you know, law enforcement was the thing. It was awesome. It was you know, if you knew cops or you had cops in your family, it was at least for me and and, and my and I, my upbringing, it was one of the most revered things that we had going in New York. And New York City specifically was so prideful in their police department. How would you say that sort of has changed in the last five years, um, and why has it changed? Well, I will offer this, you know, for you and me, we were big law enforcement proponents. 
not everybody necessarily was. And, you know, the, the, the media lean left and they like to highlight police brutality cases of which there were occasionally some. Uh, but the big difference is in um, the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, you know, it was understood that violence was violence. Um, criminals were criminals. Riots were bad, uh, should be condemned, should be controlled, should be quelled. Um, you can go back to the some of the worst race riots we we saw in the 1960s, 65, 67, and onward to Rodney King. And you know the media and a good chunk of the culture may have had sympathy with uh, those who were airing their grievances, but everybody understood that you can't do it in that way. And now our system is so corrupted, and the Black Lives Matter ideology so pernicious and and so manipulative that our major institutions and political figures have excused the violence, say that somehow this is this is okay. They've either ignored it or they've explained it away. And that's a major shift. We have not seen that. That's been a we really have not seen that ever in our history where this kind of violence is excused, explained away, or somehow seen. And we've we've seen we saw the media do it. And well, systemic racism somehow justifies this. We're at risk of losing the country because our institutions have signed up for this nonsense. And deep down, they know it's nonsense. Deep down, they do. But they've signed on to it, I think, to enhance and maintain their own power, if that makes sense. That's a good swag, a segue, uh, Greg, into your, your new book, Justice for All. So because I know this is a kind of a key component uh, of the book, but why don't you just walk us through uh, kind of the high points of, of, you know, when you sat down to write the book, I know the beginning of the book kind of talks about your, your background a little bit. Uh, and then I know you get into this uh, deep into the critical race theory and black lives matter. Walk the audience through kind of your thought process of, of, of the, the history of writing the, the book justice for all. Well, there was a moment, uh, I guess, the book would not have been written had not Donald Trump walked from the White House to the front of St. John's Church, which they tried to burn down the night before. And Donald Trump did something that was so offensive to so many people, to our culture. He <laughs> held up a Bible in front of a church. Now, you could say perhaps that was a little bit on the nose or maybe that was a little bit awkward. To me, it wasn't a Bible in front of a church. I'm fine with that. Peace over violence. I'm fine with that. The way he was universally condemned. And when General Milley apologized <laughs> for being yeah. a half block away in that moment and said that I ran the risk of appearing as though I were involved in domestic politics and then made a bizarre statement where he wades into every thorny domestic political issue of our day and takes an opinion on it in this apology. I knew that society, the wheels had come off uh, the train yeah. and I started documenting things. And how did this happen? Why did this happen? And how do we push back? So I document the origins of Black Lives Matter, how basically it was, it came together to bail out Barack Obama politically. In 2011, he was in really bad shape with the African-American community. Polls 
substantiate this. He lost uh, something like 50% of his support in the black community. And that set off alarm bells. So he had to decide, you know, am I going to be the post-racial president that I promised to be? You know, a guy who could actually walk into uh, a black church and say, sorry, dads, you know, this is in every community, but especially ours. We have too many of fathers who are MIA and AWOL, and we as a community have to fix that. Uh, Jesse Jackson threatened to castrate him, so he didn't do it again. And Barack Obama was always kind of conflicted about his race. You can look it up in his 17 memoirs, autobiography. Am <laughs> I white? Am I black? You know, they, 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 they view me in the black community with suspicion. And so he chose for a matter of survival and then also now that for brand burnishment and money and opportunity and prestige to go all in on grievance culture, on victimization culture. And the, those who have paid the price are police. One more thing on this, you know, he spoke out about police disproportionately stopping black and Latinos in the aftermath of, um, remember Professor Gates up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a, a prominent African-American professor from Harvard coming home, going to his house and being stopped by police. A neighbor thought he was trying to break into his own house. There was a, a minor media story. Barack Obama chose to highlight this and say, this is a moment that we all need to you know, reevaluate. And why is it that they're being stopped disproportionately? Now, if he were a true leader, he would have said the next part, because most of the crime is happening in black and Latino neighborhoods. It's a fact. <laughs> it was a fact that they're stopped disproportionately. But that's also a fact. And to leave that out, I thought was so reckless. And it fostered this anti-cop hysteria. And the cops now, they always had a hard job. They risked their lives going to work. Now they're risking their livelihoods and freedom. And I understand why they're quitting. I understand why they're not signing up for that. And if we don't correct as a culture real soon, we're, I don't know where this is going to end, but it's not going to be good. Yeah, you see this, uh, Greg, The and now the it's gotten so bad that now, Police, chief, police uh, chiefs, the the heads of, of the different uh, law enforcement agencies, you now have to do a checklist of you know the woke checklist, especially in the big cities. So, you know, you're basically required to have so many of this, so many of that, so many of these, and then you end up with totally incompetent police forces. Which you know the best example, one that I was in, involved with for many years, and that is at the the Capitol Police. And, you know, the Capitol Police became so political and I won't get, you know, we won't, you know, place blame on the, on the police. But ultimately, that was Pelosi's fault uh, when it, in terms of, of January 6th. Um, you know, I was on the Intelligence uh, Committee. I was the, the top Republican. And I knew that there were that there were concerns leading up to January 6th. I had talked to the sergeant of arms and other people. And I was wondering at the time, like, why the hell aren't these barricades that are normally up? We're, we're getting close. Not on, are, are they normally up for a big, like, say, Supreme Court decision. Mm -hmm. They're always up right before an inauguration, and they weren't up. And so what you see, and I think ultimately Republicans may expose some of this, Cash, you were, you were very involved in this. Um, you see how you know, they, they politicized the whole police force, and then stupid decisions were made or inaction occurred, you know, culminating with no fences, no calling up the National Guard, and then you let people into the Capitol. I mean, that's what this you end up with. And that's just the, the you know, 
the United States Capitol. Um, and it's got to be much worse in, in New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I saw, you know, just January 6th was personal to me. I was chief of staff at the Department of Defense, and we were in charge of the National Guard response. And Devin's exactly right. Pelosi and Bowser failed, and Donald Trump acted appropriately and lawfully by offering them 20,000 National Guards, and they turned it down. So to me, that was that was like the... I guess the, the the final point where I said, okay, our military and our law enforcement are totally weaponized now. We've moved beyond politics, and I think you know what I what I what I've understood from your book, which is really neat, um, is that there's a way to fix it. I, and I'm not the expert, but what would you tell the audience is like the number one, two, three ways we sort of attack that approach and get back to this justice for all system that's not supposed to be two tiered. I do have some suggestions, and. Give me a moment. I will say this about January 6th, because it is emblematic what you just mentioned uh, about the politicization of that police force. They're attempting that everywhere. Uh, wow. You know, they want to turn policing into the teachers union, into academia, into media. They want it to be a Democratic liberal um, redoubt. And that we see in in uh, the Capitol Hill police. And I like to highlight on my show the failures of that department and how they have allowed themselves to be politicized. And you see that with the January 6th cops, those who have testified. And it's very dangerous. I do think this is a step toward fascism. They pick those police officers very carefully. The good old boy, the pretty uh, cop, uh, the, D the Dominican war hero and the big uh, Harry Dunn. They think that it's difficult to criticize them. The most cynical move I've ever seen, really, one of them. Yeah, that it puts people, citizens in an awkward position somehow. And it's actually one of the recommendations in my book, because that's the road to real fascism. You know, Harry Dunn, who's still a Capitol Hill police officer, is issuing tweets, you know, kind of giving uh, instructions to incoming members, telling them your job is to represent the people and you better be honest and this, that and the other thing. That's fascism. He has a gun. He has a uniform. This is how it starts. He's unelected. And one of the recommendations actually in my book is, and it's kind of paradoxical because I support law enforcement, but I urge people to not be too intimidated by uniforms. Uniforms, we revere police. We revere uh, their sacrifice. We revere their professionalism. However, they are public servants. They work for us. I'm in a unique position, perhaps. I was in the uniform. I was in the Marine Corps. My father was police commissioner. I can take those guys on. It's not necessarily easy for others to do that. I implore others to say, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, we can. I think you did this in Congress, uh, uh, Congressman Nunes, and I think who comes to mind is Matt Gates. He never served in the military, but he's not afraid to take on General Milley. And there are a lot of <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Left and right who are intimidated by intimidated by the stars uh, yeah. on the shoulder. And the other thing I actually and I know it sounds quaint. I know it sounds perhaps infinitesimal, but I urge my readers to engage civically by writing letters, writing letters to members of Congress, to public officials, pen to paper, computer ink to paper. It's one thing to tweet. It's one thing to send an email to a general box. Those things disappear. They evaporate. And everybody moves on to the next thing in about six seconds, and everything is forgotten. 
magical things start to happen, in my opinion, and in my experience, when you put pen to paper, and it exists in the physical world, and somebody, more often than not, will respond to that. And we have to, um, we have to make the case in writing. I know that's I know that's kind of far-fetched, and I'd love to get your opinion on that uh, yeah. if, uh, if I'm onto something. But it's one little thing we can do that I think can help. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because, you know, part of the reason why I ended up here at True Social running this company uh, was because I was being shadow banned by these, you know, by these big tech companies. And I couldn't get the message out. And we had struggled, you know, you know, cash, you know, being our lead investigator on this, that, you know, trying to convince the American people that the Russia hoax was, in fact, a hoax. And we couldn't, you know, I, Greg, I must have come on your show, you know, I don't know, every week for week after week after week for so long. And no matter how, you know, it was almost like 60% of America was being cut off from the truth. And I actually, I wrote a book. Uh, before the 2020 election, and I know I, I know I was on your show uh, with that book came out uh, right before the election 2020 called Countdown to Socialism. Um, and it was really important. And it wasn't not a book like yours. Um, it was more like a pamphlet. Um, but the idea was, is like, geez, like all this history is being written that is totally phony. Like I got to at least put into writing what the hell's going on here. And so, Greg, I, I think that's a very prescient of you, uh, prescient of you to, to say that. And you know, thinking back, that's that's why I wrote that book back in 2020, um, really just to say, God, uh, you know, if, if we all get wiped out here, at least there'll be some record of what actually happened. I think, um, you know, to, to, to piggyback off that, when I was Devin's lead investigator on House Intel, going back to your pen to paper ideology, you know, I was a former federal prosecutor, public defender, Intel guy, and writing letters wasn't my, you know, my thing. I, yeah, I was a lawyer, but that's so I'd be like, I figured it out, Devin. <clears throat> Hillary paid for it. Or I figured it out. The FBI lied to the FISA court. He's like, okay, write a letter. Write a letter. I'll sign it. I, Devin Nunes will sign it as a chairman of the Intel Committee, and I'll send it to DOJ. Then we'll take that letter, and we'll send it to the public if it's unclassified. So people can see what exactly we're doing. And so I agree. With, and that was a lesson I learned from him, and I totally agree with you. You have to put it down on paper. And you have to get it out to the public. And when you do that, it has an impact because look at what we're talking about. To, uh, well, look at what the number two story is in the media today. It'd be the number one if it wasn't for Biden losing his Corvette keys. The number one story would be Schiff and Swalwell and the media hitched together to stop the Nunes memo. The most critical document uh, ever written in modern congressional oversight history exposing the FBI and DOJ corruption and the Intel community corruption. That was a four page letter um, that, uh, you know, then Chairman Nunes penned and put out. And so I couldn't agree more with you that these things stand the test of time. That that memo is six years old now or whatever it is, four years old now. It's uh, it's really the way to do the messaging that you're talking about. You know, um, and by the way, thank you both for your work. I mean, what you guys at that moment where you were, uh, I, I think it's almost divine intervention um, that you gentlemen were working together when you were there and you took the actions you did when you did. Um, you know, there's one, there's another item and my, look, I don't have all the answers, obviously. I document how we got here and it is a robust defense of law enforcement. But there's another item that I specifically say we as conservatives have to do and be, and that's 
more comfortable and more vocal talking about race. Now, it is a topic that, quite frankly, will shut up most people most of the time. Uh, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I could get in trouble. And the truth is, you can get in trouble if you say the wrong thing. And that's why you actually have to get somewhat conversant in it. Uh, because right now, the far left, they're the ones who determine the parameters of the conversation. The far left, no matter what color they are, by the way, usually it's white liberals who are dictating what you can and cannot say about race and what, what's fashionable in the moment. And it changes every second. And it's a nonsensical discussion. Coast to coast, we've been having a moronic conversation about race in order to avoid a more a substantive, helpful, and maybe uncomfortable conversation about race. Um, that's important. And I encourage my, my readers to start thinking about these issues. Look, it would have been great if Barack Obama would have led the charge on this. He yeah. didn't. <laughs> He's more interested in making a billion dollars, which he already did. Goodbye and good luck. It falls to people like Greg Kelly at Newsmax and you guys and a bunch of others. <laughs> and I actually think that ultimately uh, all of us will will benefit, especially people of color. Yeah. Well, Greg, well said. And uh, congratulations on your book. And uh, obviously we uh, we're big fans and appreciate, uh, you know, obviously your service. But uh, also you've been a strong, steady voice out there. Uh, when not a lot of people were willing to stand up and, and, and stand up for the truth, especially dealing with all the government corruption that Cash and I dealt with. So congratulations and, and thank you. Awesome. Thank you very, very much. Uh, thank you for helping me plug the book available wherever books are sold and uh, Devin and Cash in honor and uh, to be continued. Thank you. That sounds great. So justice for all, everybody uh, go out and pick it up and uh, you'll see it on True Social. With that, we'll catch you next time. Awesome. Take care, guys. Thank you, Greg.